Welcome to this edition of Who's Round, which is part two of my interview with special sound genius Brian Hodgson, which is accompanied by the special sound of his snoring dog. determined to make change, to change things. And I was very lucky because Aubrey Singer had just become managing director of radio. He'd just come over from television. And he brought an amazing guy over as organizer, producer, production facilities, a guy called John Dutens, who was really, when I first met him, he was rather creepy. And apparently, he had one of those really cute minds. Uh, he would ask a question that went straight to the point. And if you were faffed about and didn't know what you wanted to do, he could demolish you in seconds. Uh, but we seemed to hit it off. And he said, well, what, what do you really want? Because you know, the workshop had no budget. It uh, survived on what I called fag ends and lollipops. Uh, the fag ends were bits of money that were left over from other people's budgets. At the end of the year, you know, it'd be like £3,000 here or £1,000 there. And then lollipops were things, because Desmond was always moaning he didn't have any money to spend on the department. And a lollipop was something they stuck in his mouth to shut him up for another, <laughs> another six months. Uh, and so John Duterte asked me to prepare a document, a report on the workshop of what I wanted to do. And... Uh, submit that to Director of Resources Television, uh, who was Michael Checkland, who later became DJ. So I, crew, I, I did this report. Uh, the upshot of it was I was given £100,000 a year to, to start transforming the workshop. And of course, the technology was beginning to change. The synthesizers and polyphonic synthesizers had just about emerged. Shortly after I went back, uh, modulation synthesis started. Uh, we got the first um, computer synthesizers, uh, Fairlight, CMI. Um, and so I was able to take advantage of all this money that the Japanese were pouring in uh, to uh, create equipment and sell equipment, things like Yamaha Roland. And I was able to sort of like surf on the edge of that and just keep the workshop. What, what the plan was that we would upgrade a studio every year uh, or, and we would acquire more space. So I, I gradually acquired, <laughs> acquired a large area of Medivac. We'd started off with two rooms, an office and a, and a common room. Uh, and we ended up with maybe six studios altogether. And each one was equipped with the state of the art as it was. And at the moment, you know, in the 80s, 83, I heard about the Macintosh. I was reading about how there was music software for it. And I went and found uh, one of the first places that had them in, in the country. Um, and then I, I met some people who handled them on the south coast. We got our first Macintosh and things like that. Um, so we, we, as I say, we were able to sort of surf along. I also was very fortunate when 
uh, halfway through this procedure, uh, Desmond decided he was going to retire into early retirement. And I got uh, a young chap called John Gibbs, who's now a big arts administrator, who was a computer genius. I mean, I, I knew what computers did, I didn't know anything about them. Um, John was. And he and Peter Howell came up with some ideas. Peter had to think about an audio battle, which was a thing to keep musicians in time when you're using musicians with electronic equipment. This eventually turned into a, um, a whole program, which uh, Syncrite, I think it was called, um, which John developed. And John also uh, created uh, the archive. Because up to then, the radiophonic archive really consisted of a big book with um, numbers, uh, the title of the program. And if you were very lucky, Desmond would have written in the margin, in pencil, the, uh, the initials of the person who'd worked on it. So we, we put all of that, we computerized all of that so that the radiophonic workshop had a computerized archive, which is still in use today and, and been invaluable for reference and things. Um, so we we created this uh, new radiophonic workshop, really, which was like at one point Yamaha reckoned it was the most sophisticated MIDI environment in Europe, and everything was going really well until, of course, um, Mr. Burke came along and decided that the BBC that as it ran, uh, wasn't viable, um, and created producer choice. It was a bit like when they, you know, they put uh, the market into the National Health Service. Everything <laughs> actually fell apart. Mm -hmm. So we look really BBC changed. BBC would have had to change um, the way it was changed. I, I have reservations about, but it would have had to change anyway and become much more responsible. But one of, the, one of the downsides is that when you, before producer choice, if we had a phone call from, as, as we did often, there was a little lady in Wales who made Welsh language nursery rhyme programs for children. Now she could ring us up and get the services of the workshop for nothing, uh, just as much as you know, Horizon could ring us and get the services for nothing. So she had that extra resource, which she would never have been able to afford under producer choice. So she, she lost the ability to enhance her production values by using the workshop. Um, and, of course, Horizon could ring up anyone and, and book anyone. They, they always had been able to do but they, they would then find it was cheaper to go and get someone who's making music in their bedroom um, than use the workshop. Because the workshop by then had been lumbered with all of the costs of West End premises, all of the equipment, which, which is, was, had become capital assets and needed to be written down. Um, all of the salaries, all of the, you know, the backup, our share of engineering costs, our share of the electric bill, um, which made the, the workshop financially not a viable concern.
and so it came to an end. And so what happened was they let it sort of wither on the vine, so to speak. And I think Peter Howell said it right. What they should have done was say, look, guys, we can't afford you anymore. Tough, but there it is. Thanks for all that you've done. Let's have a big party. You can all go home. But instead of doing that, they, they let things, and it happened to a lot of the apartments, they let things sort of shrivel until they dropped off leaving the people concerned with the feeling that they'd failed um, rather than, you know, everyone had come to a sensible conclusion to the business. A shame after a long association with... Yeah, I mean, I, I, all, all the time I worked at the BBC, I thought, I am so lucky, I'm just doing things I really love for an organisation that, you know, for all its failings was an amazing, what still is an amazing organisation. Um, but producer choice, which was in fact preceded by a sort of a year when he was the deputy director general of a sort of organisation that appeared to be lost and was sort of just going round and round in circles. Nobody able to make any decisions because he was going to take over in a year's time. And so I think as in the history of management, I, I would think that period, and not just within the BBC, but everywhere that uh, people started to put markets into the thing, nobody really thought, thought the whole thing through properly. And they did things in a way which... With hindsight, they probably wouldn't have done nowadays. It's it's difficult to turn uh, say Robin Hood into ICI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's a nice quote. Um, so you you went for a, do you change course completely? You you went into a diff completely different. I went into sort of management. And, um, and like using the technology to advance the things. So, so I, I was able to give a composer the facilities they needed to do things in you know, a very short time. In the old days, to make a you know, bit of the Who's Sig tune to nearly a couple of months to put together. The, the nice thing, uh, when I'd finished, well, I hadn't finished because it was still ongoing, but with all the modern equipment, you could actually have an idea, try it out, and say, that's a crap idea, let's think of something else. In the old days, it might take you seven days to find out your idea wasn't, wasn't capable of being produced on, on the equipment. Um, but it's too late by then, you just had to make do amend and, uh, and press on. So you never were thinking really about what was coming out the other end. Uh, because what came out the other end depended on how much you could do on the equipment and, and the time you had available to do it. Which I think to the end of it, Dudley and I, Dudley was writing the music and we were producing the music overnight. Um, you know, if we were lucky, we had 24 hours before a dub to create all of the scores for in the 70s uh, Doctor Who. Well, yeah. Tell me about the various composers that you worked with on on Doctor Who, because we, you know, we see their names, we know their music, but we don't necessarily 
who who are, who are to you as a as a you know music person who are the most talented composers? Well, I think Tristram Carey, um, who did a lot of the early Doctor Who's. Tristram was a not only an immensely nice man, he was an immensely talented composer um, and a very talented teacher. And he'd been in electronic music really almost from the word go, um, making his own equipment, building his own equipment, working with tape recorders. So there was Tristram. Um, I never worked with Roberto Gerhard Dichter. Um, I worked with Kerry Blyton. Um, His music's always quite interesting on the Doctor Very, Who's. very interesting. <laughs> Kerry was a very interesting man as well, altogether. Um, Somebody described his music on the Silurians as uh, sounds like a synthesised kazoo. Because it had that, it was a crumb horn, was it? I, 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 yeah, I think it was. Um, but, but again, in, in this, you know, I didn't work with a lot of other composers in Doctor Who, apart from Dudley. Um, and when Barry uh, asked the workshop if they would realise stuff, I said, it's very difficult to, for a composer to come in and learn the techniques. You really, really need to need someone who is used to working, you know, in this sort of field, and his experience with the sort of equipment we're using. Um, and it's we. I'd done some work with Dudley, and and that Dudley became the sort of Doctor Who composer of the seventies, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he um, did. And it was great because originally we, st we started, Dudley had, would record stuff in the studio and then we would treat it and make it sound unreal because he was already working on Doctor Who by then. And, and then once the synthesizers uh, came in and Barry thought it'd be nice to have all the music synthesized, uh, then Dudley sort of really took over at that point. And, and so he and I would work. As I say, sometimes at the end of a season, we'd be going through the night. A um, number of times I've dropped off asleep in the Doctor Who dub the next morning because we literally would arrive as the dub was about to start with the tapes, uh, having come straight from the studio. And what sort of characters Dudley had? Oh, he's fantastic. He's a jolly Aussie guy. His background was classical music. Uh, Margot Fantaine discovered him when he was a conductor. Uh, in Sydney after the Royal Ballet thing, he conducted one of the performances and she was so impressed with him she persuaded him to come back to England um, and nothing phased Dudley uh, you just got on with it you know. and Dudley's favourite saying is do you want a good or do you want a Wednesday <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the answer in those days used to be, well, we'd actually like it Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, no he, but he was, he was a lot of fun to work with. He could drive you up the wall. I could drive him up the wall. Um, but we had a good partnership, and it worked well. Now, I think Dudley, when I came back to the BBC, he was still, you know, they were still doing Doctor Who. And because of facilities at the workshop were so limited, I had to say, look, Doctor Who is taking up half of our facilities for half of the week and, and now you've got synthesizers available in commercial studios I really think Dudley needs to go and um, use commercial facilities.
so I think things go down a little well at the time. Um, and then I th then I think when John Nathan Turner took over, he sort of gradually got rid of yeah of Dudley and started introducing other composers. Yeah, well, he phased him out in favour of the Radiophonic Workshop. Yes, before. originally. I mean, that that was an, uh, amazing because John came and said, "I'd like the workshop to stop providing the music. Can you do sort of a few demos and things?" So. He said, I don't want anyone to know about this. It's absolutely vulnerable. Nobody knows except the people you're going to use. And he said, I don't want word to get back to the other composers we're using. So I was faced with a dilemma. Now, Dick is a fantastic guy. Um, but his ability to keep a secret <laughs> is uh, in minus. <laughs> <laughs> So I knew perfectly well. The first person I would know would be Dudley. Um, so I, I asked Peter and Paddy to do it. And they, originally they were going to be just Peter and Paddy, only doing um, music for Doctor Who. And they, we managed to keep the secret. Uh, and they both did something, and John said, fine. And then... I gradually started to introduce other people into it. John, John wasn't very reluctant at first, um, but gradually the other composers in the workshop came in. Um, and that all continued with the workshop you know, doing the music. Um, and then, after a fairly dramatic uh, experience we had in the early 80s, uh, John decided he wanted to bring in other composers, so he brought in you know, various other people like Mark Ayers. And what was the trauma? I pers persuaded JNT uh, to give one, one of the stories to John Lewis. Yeah. And of course, John um, died during that while he was working on it. Yeah, Mark of the And John, yeah. Uh, John Gibbs took over. Um, and John Nathan Turner had not been around when all this hit the fan and um, that weekend the Sun produced uh, a list of symptoms of AIDS which was exactly the same as common cold uh, people were sort of dropping off the perch all over the place um, and they John Gibbs was, was very good. He was my assistant at the, at the workshop. Um, and he just fielded all the phone calls. People would keep kept ringing me up. And, you know, newspapers, News of the World wanted to talk to me and, and all of that bit. Uh, my boss in, in radio said, uh, I think it would be a good idea if you went and did a tour of all the electronic facilities in, in Europe. Um, uh, but uh, Richard, who's my partner, said, no, we're not going to do this. He said, I'll answer the door if we get any problems. He was between films anyway. But, uh, um, and then suddenly somebody who was rather more famous in the BBC, or rather more prominent, uh, died that weekend. And I think it was all. It was all over. But JNT was really <laughs> with me, I think. Um, for, he felt that I, I had put him in this position because uh, he came back f 
find it had all been sorted, in fact. Mm. But, uh, at that point, he, he made this decision. He wanted to take this music away from the workshop. It's hard, because I lived through that time, but hearing you talk about it now, it sounds like the Dark Ages. It's yes, extraordinary, isn't it? It was, just, just quite amazing. I mean, I just lost one of my best friends. Uh, it was a horror story. So that's, uh, yeah, well, let's nip down the star. All right. Hello, everybody. There's very similitude in this podcast because um, we're not where we were a second ago. We've just had lunch and um, I'm going to catch my train, which is three quarters of an hour earlier than I thought it was. And Brian has saved my bacon. So we're, we're talking as we go in the car. Um, and Brian has just left the BBC as far as our conversation was going. And what people might not know, Brian, is that you then went into a completely different career. Yeah, I took six months off the moment I left the BBC because I just wanted to get my head clear. And I'd always been interested in hypnotherapy because when I stopped smoking in the early 80s, I'd come off overnight after smoking 60 odd a day for years uh, with hypnotherapy. So I went off to a, a school uh, and learned hypnotherapy and counselling and did a, a BTEC in uh, complementary health care. And then I did that for a couple of years, ended up with a small practice and also working for a charity called Body Positive, uh, an AIDS charity, uh, where I spent the next few years uh, treating people free. Also, I had a tiny practice in uh, Harley Street. Sounds grand, but it, we just rented the room by the hour, so to speak. Um, did that until uh, Body Positive's charity folded uh, as part of a big reorganisation and there was really no longer any reason for me to stay in London. Richard was working in the film industry, he could work from anywhere. So we decided to move to Norfolk and it was going to be lovely. I was going to come up to Norfolk in 2002 Oh, we had a nice big house, and I was going to sit in the garden, drink gin and tonic, and read novels. Uh, ho ho. Uh, the house was a complete mess, 200 years old, so we spent the first two years getting the house and the garden sorted out. And then, just as I thought we could relax and pour the gin and tonic and go and sit in the garden reading, uh, Richard decided it would be fun to ha- have a restaurant. Um, well, he thought it would be fun to have a tea room, uh, basically. Once uh, we realised that our barn was in such a mess, it would cost an arm and a leg, uh, we then thought, well, perhaps it ought to be a bit more than a tea room, a proper restaurant cafe or something. So we got a consultant, and sort of one thing led to another. next thing, we were running... Um, this 60-seater restaurant in our old boat shed. Uh, the first year was uh, we had an incredibly temperamental chef. And he, he, he and I fell out and I had a nervous breakdown. And, um, but the second year we had this really wonderful chef and we, we did enormously well. We, uh, we took a quarter of a million pounds in 16 weeks. It was it was a wonderful restaurant. People loved it. Unfortunately, we you know not really being having been in the business, the restaurant business, uh, 
we were employing too many people and so that instead of the money building up, it wasn't building up, it was just going on paying staff. And of course, in August that year, uh, as the season was ending on the broads, uh, the recession suddenly hit. And there we were with the restaurant, lo- loads of bills and people to pay, and, uh, and no money to pay them with. The bank refused to help because they decided at that point that they were not lending any money to restaurants ever again under any circumstances. <laughs> uh, and so we lost the restaurant. We lost a fair amount of money with it. And, uh, we closed it. And uh, went back. We eventually sold it, losing an f- immense amount of money. And Richard suddenly at that point decided we'll, we'll do a bed and breakfast into the, the front part of the house. So we were, we were decorating, doing all of that, and he was diagnosed then with uh, leukemia and um, died three years later. Now we haven't introduced him properly. He was your partner for 38 years, and he worked. He worked in he, the film industry. He worked in the film industry. He's, his CV was a, a bit like the history of the British film industry. Uh, his first film was uh, as a costume assistant on uh, Lionel Bart's Oliver. And curiously enough, his last film was Roman uh, Polanski's Oliver. And he worked on Tommy, Sheltering Sky, Valentino. A lot of the Ken Russell films, um, Spy Game in recent years, uh, Battle of Britain. Uh, He he became a very well-known wardrobe supervisor and was quite quite a fun guy as well. (laughs) Well, um, talking, you you mentioned with something we talked over lunch we talked over a few directors and you had a nice story about Lenny Main which I, I can't not have for posterity on my recorder <laughs> apparently Lenny was a party I think it was in the BBC club and it, it, things were getting rather lively shall we say a fair amount of alcohol had been sunk and Lenny was wearing a fronted shirt sort of the buttons quite down he had a very hairy chest and uh, Somebody said, Lenny, is that real? And Lenny said, of course it is. And they got a cigarette lighter and they set fire to it. <laughs> and it, it, apparently it was, it was like a minor explosion. It went, woof! <laughs> Singed his eyebrows in the front of his head. As well as got rid of all the hair off his chest. <laughs> well, look, um, the, the final two questions I have are... One is, uh, could you nominate a charity for me, please? Um, I think Oxfam. And uh, we conveniently—I mean, I'm speaking to you. All, what two weeks, two and a half weeks before the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who? Yes. Which seems appropriate in the month. Um, everybody listening to this is a big fan of Doctor Who. Um, so, what what have you got to say to the listening Doctor Who fans on this 50th year of Doctor Who? Thank you for your patience and kindness. <laughs> 
well, I could say the same to you and for getting me to the train on time and I could have spent hours more in your company. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. So, Brian Hodgson, thank you very much. My pleasure. My thanks to Brian, one of the true heroes of Doctor Who and one of my favourite people involved in the series. Uh, I'd actually wanted, when I spoke to Brian, I knew we wouldn't be able to do much about specific stories because he worked on so many. I'd sort of gone there with the sneaking desire to get an anecdote about the rescue because at this point in my mission, uh, I only had about seven or eight Doctor Who stories left to cover, one of which was the rescue of which there weren't many key players left and most of those had done the DVD and I wanted to get people different from the DVD. So how was I to do the rescue? As our conversation went, um, it, it seemed wrong to bring up a particular two-week story because our chat wasn't really about those sorts of specifics. And Brian's talked a lot about the Hartnell era and I thought it was good to get this stuff about JNT era, which he doesn't really normally get asked about. So what was I to do about the rescue? Well, I solved that in the next Who's Round. Here's a sneak preview. In the meantime, please donate to Brian's charity, which is Oxfam, www.oxfam.org.uk. Thank you. I remember all the people at the Everyman Theatre saying, oh, you've got to do it if you get it, you know, you've got to do it. And I was saying, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm not very keen on telly and blah, 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 like that, you know. And they all said, oh, you'll be terribly rich and um, you'll get over £100 a week and you'll be things like that. I wasn't very moved by that either. And in fact, I got 30 guineas, which was unheard of wealth. I was earning £6 a week at the Everyman. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Omega Factor. Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. The end. In this case, the end of scientific knowledge. We are asking you to go further than that end, beyond the end. To the Omega Factor. And further. Big Finish. We love stories.